Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. Howdy folks, I'm Daniel Mullins. Glad to be back with another installment of the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast, field recorded interviews with leaders and legends in bluegrass music. I'm Daniel Mullins and I'm excited uh, to welcome Jeremy and Karina Stevens to the podcast today. You remember in Back to the Future, when Marty McFly goes back in time to his parents' age and he sticks out like a sore thumb? I don't think Jeremy and Karina would have that problem if they took a DeLorean back to the 1950s. They'd fit right in. And you'll see why these young folks really have old souls on today's installment of the Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast brought to you by Samson's Hair Care. Be sure to check out uh, their shampoos, their conditioners, their pomades, their beard oils, and more at samsonshaircare.com. Use code WALLSOFTIME to save on your first order. Jeremy and Karina are so special. Not only are they uber talented on practically all the bluegrass instruments, but they're so kind and so sweet and so generous with their time. We had a blast at the Coffee Hub in Xenia. Great coffee spot that's just around the corner from the radio station that I work at, Real Roots Radio. And we popped in there, had some snacks, had some coffee. And uh, while all the hustle and bustle of a coffee shop was going around us, we had a deep dive conversation into Jeremy and Karina's story, both uh, musically and personally. And we had a whole lot of fun. Recorded this interview in 2021, and uh, Karina speaks fondly of the late member of the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame, Mr. Jesse McReynolds. Jesse passed away during the summer of 2023. Let's head to the Coffee Hub in Xenia, Ohio. Here's my visit with Jeremy and Karina Stevens on Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. So tickled to be sitting here with uh, Jeremy Stevens and Karina Rose Logston Stevens. Now, I'll ask you the same question my dad asked you earlier today. Do you always go by all four names? I don't always, Daniel. You know, to save space on records, I'll use my first three quite a bit. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, at at home, I'm just Karina Stevens. But uh, so many folks have known me by my, my first three names my whole life. Jeremy, at some point, said, you need to just be using them first three names primarily and uh, keep it consistent with your yep. recorded career. So that's what I'm uh, sticking to most of the time nowadays. If you need to shorten it, feel free to use, use the first three. <laughs> three out of four. <laughs> <laughs> or or like your website is KarinaKarina.com. You could just take it Bob Wills style and just go from there, right? That's right. Exactly. <laughs> when in doubt, go with Bob Wills, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Now, bluegrass kind of is what brought you two together. Is that right? How yes. did you guys How did you guys meet? Karina, you want to talk about it? Sure. We met at uh, Spigma in 2009, February 2009. And uh, we had both heard about each other from uh, different mutual friends and stuff like that. And I've always been a, a connoisseur of Don Reno-style banjo. And a mutual friend of ours, Chris Carter, he, uh, he would always uh, tell me about different folks who knew uh, about Don's playing and different people that I might enjoy playing with and could uh, could uh, get to talk shop with about Don Reno banjo and stuff like that. And uh, that particular year at Spigma was unique because it fell over Valentine's Day weekend. 
And I don't know if that's ever happened in the uh, Spigma history, but it did that year. And uh, I think they moved something because of something where uh, I think it had something to do with Rhonda Vincent's tour schedule and different things like that. They were trying to line things out. And it, anyway, one thing led to another, and they moved it to Valentine's Day weekend. And Jeremy and I actually met uh, February 13th or 14th. We're not sure exactly when, <laughs> but that weekend. And uh, shortly after, uh, after we met, we said, well, we ought to uh, jam a little bit. And uh, no sooner than we said that, Kurt Stevenson walked by, who was uh, someone that both of us knew, independent of each other. And we said, get over here and let's jam some. So we had a jam session that night and uh, became friends and, and started playing music and chatting and uh, eventually started dating. And here we are today. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you mentioned your guys' mutual admiration for the music of Don Reno. When were you both uh, individually first exposed to the Reno sound and what what drew you to, to Reno and, and his uh, musical wi- wizardry? <laughs> yeah, so for me, um, I guess I first heard Don Reno's music from um, a guy that, that I played in a band with when we were kids, Mark Hudson. And um, that would have been in about 1995, I guess. Um Mark had just gotten the Reno and Smiley box set, the first one, on cassette, which covered all their recordings from 51 to 59. And um, he was playing it for me, and I really liked it, you know, and that was kind of my beginning. And then I think for that Christmas, I got it on CD. Um, That was my foray into CDs. I was resistant to CDs at that point. (laughs) (laughs) He he was an old man even when he was a young man, wasn't he, Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I guess so. I was sort of that way, though, too, when, when computers and stuff started coming out. I said, I don't want nothing to do with a computer. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I had been, uh, I loved the sound of the banjo, you know, and I, I um, had the first uh, real banjo music I'd heard much was uh, from a cassette that a lady made for um, me when I was in kindergarten. She drove school buses there. Um, at my elementary school, and she worked for my dad's real estate company, too. And uh, so she made this cassette. One side was Raymond Fairchild, and the other side was uh, Willie and Clinton Gregory, which Clinton Gregory you know, became a country star in the 90s and all. He's from my area. And the banjo player on that record's a guy named Troy Brammer, who became a mentor to me. And Troy played in that style similarly, you know, similarly, uh, I should say, uh, single string. So it's very similar to Don Reno's, of course, Raymond Fairchild did too. So that was kind of my first introduction to that type of playing. But um, I got to know Troy, and he really pointed me in the right direction of, um, you know, different things that Don had recorded that I should listen to, and uh, as well as being a major influence on me uh, in his own right with his style. Well, what made that school bus driver give you a, a tape of banjo music? Well, Mom and Dad... Uh, when they figured out that I kind of liked that type of music, I mean, Dad likes the Rolling Stones and all of that that type of stuff, and and Mom, you know, she played piano in church. You ask Mom, like, I've asked her several times in the past, you know, I said, Mom, what kind of music do you do you like? And she's like, Well, you know, just whatever's on the radio, and so so uh, you know, Mom loves all different kinds of music, but. Um, they tried to put me in front of 
what they thought that I liked. And uh, I guess, you know, seeing different things on TV and all, um, uh, you know, they, they realized well, like, I, like I liked Like or TNN yeah, or what? And, and then there was a show called American Music Shop that was on in the late 80s. And uh, Dad would, would watch that some. I guess that was on the Nashville Network. And um, he filmed a show that had Earl Scruggs, Marty Stewart, Roy Husky Jr., Jerry Douglas, Mark O'Connor, Bashful Brother Oswald. And they're all playing together on there. And they featured Earl, and they featured Bashful Brother Oswald. And that was like, I mean, I'm getting some of the best in, the, the best in Three Finger and then the best in Clawhammer banjo with Oswald, and he played the Dobro too. And, man, I watched, Dad filmed that on the, uh, VCR and I watch it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. So this, the long story short here, um, this lady at work for for dad and she liked bluegrass music, and her husband plays. Still one of my close friends, and um, I guess she found out about it and she's like, well he'll he'll like this. So uh, they made that cassette for me and then they made another one sometime later and. Um, I've lost the first one. I hate that because I, I, I don't really know exactly what all was on it, but I have a lot of songs. You know, I'll hear songs and be like, oh, that was on that tape. You Knew know? that it hooked you. Right. Even, yeah. Right. So your parents, it sounds like they liked bluegrass, but they weren't as ate up with it as you are now. Is that fair, right. fair and, assessment? You know, and being um, from Pennsylvania County, Virginia, we're in the, the area that, that WDBJ TV uh, broadcasts, <clears throat> which is Channel 7, so when mom and dad were kids, they heard Reno and Smiley on TV every morning when they were getting ready for school. So, you know, dad kind of remembered that and, and had some reference for it, um, and, and mom too, I guess. But, um, but as far as really being connected to the music or knowing much about it, they, they didn't, you know. It was just kind of in their subconscious, I guess. Now, on the, on the flip side, your parents were very much involved in bluegrass, weren't they, Karina? That's right, Daniel. My, uh, I, I, I got it honest, I guess you'd say. <laughs> and, um, you know, just from before I was born, my parents were just, they were ate up with it. They collected records. Um, my, my mentioned this uh, when we were talking with your dad a little bit earlier. But um, my dad's dad, my grandpa Gene, played with, uh, he was from Indiana, and he played with Bobby Helms uh, when Bobby was just getting started in Indiana. So every time I hear Fraulein on the radio, I think (laughs) of my grandpa Gene, which is very, very cool. So there was some music history on my dad's side of the family. Uh, My mom's side of the family were uh, German farmers. Uh, They were very much, they didn't come directly from Germany, but they were in a a very... uh, close-knit cultural community so to hear them talk a lot of people would say what country is your grandpa from you know Uh, isolated rural areas you know and so they had very strong accents and and they weren't very into um, music and the music that they did like was stuff like polka music and um, old pop songs my grandpa loved big band music on my mom's side Um, so both my mom and dad uh, they they loved music but they never really my my dad knew about bluegrass music he told my mom about it um but it wasn't until they really started digging in themselves and you know buying records as young adults that they realized oh gosh you know like this is the kind of bluegrass we love and they actually found 
Uh, I think my mom, my mom takes credit for this. She says, I went to a, a venture department store or a Kmart department store, something like that, where they had a bunch of records on sale. And she found a Reno and Smiley record there. And it was one of these, uh, the best of Don Reno and Red Smiley. A big compilation or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And she said when she brought it home and put it on the record player, she said, this is what I've been looking for my entire life. And she said, I couldn't wait to tell your dad. She said, as soon as he came home, I said, listen to this. This is what we've been looking for. They'd been, you know, listening to different folk music. And, and uh, my dad knew about Bill Monroe and, and you know, they... They liked that and everything, but it wasn't until they really, they heard, um, you know, Reno and Smiley and, and then dug deeper from there that that really opened the whole musical gateway for them. So um, at some point, I think they brought up to my grandpa, Gene, who's the one that played with Bobby Helms, uh, about, you know, finding these artists and being like, isn't this cool? And my grandpa, Gene, said, you can go to these festivals they've got with all these people. And my mom was like, these people are still alive. And he goes, oh, yeah, they are. <laughs> so they would go to Bean Blossom and McClure and, and different festivals any time that they could get away from work. So um, when, uh, when, when I was born, I mean, I was hearing music in the womb. <laughs> uh, I was hearing it uh, long before I, I was ever around. Uh, and, and I feel like a lot of that has just soaked in by osmosis in my life because so much of what I heard... Uh, growing up and the things that my mom and dad really liked it just resonates so deeply with me and uh, they developed a pretty extensive record collection and uh, my dad would uh, similar to Jeremy uh, in a different way my dad would run uh, make mixtapes and put them on cassettes and so we'd be driving down the road and he'd be playing them and and in particularly uh, he had a he had a tape of Jim and Jesse's in the tradition album and he'd made this mixtape uh, that he called uh, Rocky Logston's Bluegrass at its Best. And he said, this is Rocky Logston's Bluegrass at its Best, the finest bluegrass anywhere. Something about, uh, you know, we're going to listen to these folks and let you be the judge. And then it kicked into Drifting with the Tide with Reno and Smiley. <laughs> and just like Jeremy said, I, I really wish that I still had that cassette. And I can tell you it was one morning coming home from church we got back to the Buick, and it was sitting in the, the back window, and it had just curled up, you know. It just was oh, one of those no. hot days. And I remember it as a kid thinking, I need to just keep that, because what if I could save it? And Dad said, oh, that thing's shot. Don't worry about it. I wish so bad I still had it. <laughs> but uh, that's, how I, that's how I got deep into to the music world, was just growing up, listening to Mom and Dad's records, being inundated around it. Um, and of course my mom and dad play and they didn't play a whole lot when I was a kid, but, uh, but when they, when they did play, it was special. They'd get their instruments out and play. And, uh, it wasn't until, uh, I was a teenager that I actually got interested in seriously playing myself, but that's how I got into Reno and Smiley's music. What about Reno and Smiley made them so different from that, the other, uh, you know, founders of the genre of that first generation of bluegrassers? What made th their... Uh, music so unique you know they they sort of took um an approach to the music that was very connected to the country music of that time you know they were almost they were like a a country band in a way with bluegrass instruments and uh you hear there's recordings of their live shows and they gosh the material they did was just 
like top 40 country at the time. They did all these, a lot of George Jones stuff they were doing live on their shows. And, uh, and from that, you know, their style kind of gets this slightly more refined sound to it maybe. Um, and, and it's the, it's a perfect platform for Don Reno's play and doing the single string stuff and the brush technique and, um, this clutchy stuff like steel guitar, you know, and all that, that sort of thing. I uh, think so much of what set, uh, Don and Red apart was their, their singing style and Don's banjo work. Yeah. Uh, it, because Don really, in so many ways, approached the banjo like playing guitar, whether that was, you know, flat picking or electric guitar or, uh, playing those double stops like he did on the banjo and Red's lead singing was just like, you know, uh, you know, a great country singer that you could hear with a full out country band yeah. and their harmony choices and just all of that sort of thing really set them apart. Well, and, and Mac McGahey's fiddle playing has been a big, huge influence on, on you as well. And he's such an overlooked fiddle player in, in bluegrass history. Uh, what about Max fiddle playing uh, drew you to him, Karina? I, I would agree with that, Daniel. He, I do feel like Max playing is overlooked. And, and uh, I think he just had an energy in his playing. And his note choices were so different from, from everybody else. Um, his bowing was different. His note choices. He just had such a creativity with playing the fiddle that was so lively. And it really, I mean, I don't think Reno and Smiley would have been the same without his fiddle playing because it's just, it just infuses this creative energy into everything. And uh, you can listen to Max arrangements on, on fiddle tunes, like on some of these live shows they do, just like they play uh, like Grey Eagle or, or on some of the records they recorded where they play Flop-Eared Mule or Buffalo Gals and stuff like that. And the variations he came up with are, are totally unique. Um, his approach to playing, he would... Uh, I, I don't know if I've ever really thought about how to concisely describe his style, but except to just say it was energetic, lively. He would a lot of times uh, choose interesting single notes and add a lot of notier variations in a similar way but different than Kenny Baker did. The same idea about, you know, alter, you know, doing these melodic bass variations but the choice is very different so well and mac approached the instrument with the same tenacity that reno approached the banjo mm -hmm. you know and and so they were such great compliments to each other yeah. and you know when you get a gal from illinois that can play fiddle like mac mcgahey that's just a recipe for love ain't it jeremy <laughs> yeah you got that right it certainly turned my head we did uh <laughs> we played sockeye in that jam that night, and uh, when she cut down on the break like Mac did on the record, I was like, oh, my gosh, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> a friend of ours, um, Harry Harmon in in, uh, in Virginia, had told me about her a couple of years before and, and uh, her about me as well, and I just thought that we would get along, you know, playing music together. And I, honestly, I didn't believe him. I remember the conversation. I thought, there's not a... It's too good there, to be there's true. There's not a girl that <laughs> can play like that. You know? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I was you, wrong. You've been at this a long time. And you hadn't met the girls that were ate up as much with Reno and Smiley as you were. So, right. Yeah. You had given up on that dream a long time ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Yeah. 
So you've heard us talk about Samson's Hair Care's hair pomade with its all-day hold and signature smell. Now they have something for the other hair on your face, your beard. Fellas, I don't know about you, but I love sporting a beard. It makes me feel so manly, and let's face it, the ladies love it. However, what they don't love is a beard that's unkempt and out of control, and when you're scratching all day like a dog. That's where Samson's Hair Care can help you. They have a brand new beard balm and beard oil to help you regain control of your beard. The beard oil is all about stopping irritation. It makes the beard softer and moisturizes the skin underneath so you're not scratching all day. They also have their beard balm, which helps you regain control of your beard, help it lay the way it's supposed to so you don't have them wiry hairs sticking out, and it makes your beard softer as well. They have a brand new beard balm and beard oil at samsonshaircare.com, and they know that bluegrassers need to look sharp. So that's why if you use code BLUEGRASS, you'll save 10% off whether you want the beard oil, the beard balm, the uh, Samson's Hair Care Pomade, or all three. Check it out at samsonshaircare.com. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 10% off. It's all at samsonshaircare.com. Code BLUEGRASS. And now back to Walls of Time. Uh, we mentioned Reno's banjo plan, but you're also a student of his guitar playing as well. And, you know, kind of the first lead guitarist in bluegrass history yeah. as far as playing those lead breaks. Oh, what made his approach to guitar so different to folks uh, that are more traditionally associated with bluegrass guitar like Tony Rice, Doc Watson, Clarence Wright? What, what made Don's approach so original? Um, you know, well, I think the, the biggest thing uh, when I think about Don's guitar playing is he was kind of the first one, you know, that was really doing it um, with the virtuosity that he was doing it with at that time period. Yeah. You know, now you got Bill Napier, too, around the same time, you know, and he Bill was great as well, slightly different style. But, um, you know, Don's approach from that uh, is based in, like, Alton Delmore's play and some and, and, and folks like that. Um, very melody-based and hard-driving, I think, is... Um, Really, two really important elements um, in Don's guitar playing. Now, Jeremy, you kind of got the bluegrass bug at a young age. How long was it before you started uh, playing all these different instruments? Because you're like Don, who is a master of banjo and guitar. You're a master of both of those and the mandolin as well. When did you start getting instruments in your hand and, and figuring out what they can do. Well, I don't claim to be a master of any of, any of it, but that's very kind. I appreciate that, Daniel. That, that means a lot. Um, you know, I actually started on fiddle when I was five, I guess, maybe four, somewhere along in there. I started taking lessons. And um, <clears throat> in that time, I heard the five-string banjo and thought, oh, I like the sound of that. I want to do that. And I kind of went to that. Mom and Dad said, you've got to, we're not going to let you just switch instruments and, you know, put one, you, you, so if you're going to learn the banjo, you're going to learn the fiddle with it at the same time. So we did. That's, and um, I stuck with the fiddle for a few years, but I was really focusing on the banjo, just doing the fiddle, because Mom and Dad said, you got to, you know, we're not going to let you just jump from one thing to another. So um, Joke's on them, because yeah. you jump from yeah. one thing to another all the time now, so. Well... <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> right, Karina? <laughs> it's true. Sometimes he's still. Sometimes he's still got the fiddle bug. Yeah, I walk in and he's playing my fiddle. Yeah, yeah, I do. I I just kind of jump around, but um, 
you know, I, I never had a time that I was like, well, I'm going to pick up this instrument or this instrument. It's just kind of like whims. Um, so I learned my first chord on the guitar by watching my banjo teacher, Ken Bentley, tune the guitar during the banjo lessons he was giving me. Uh, never, only person in my life I've ever seen do this. He would hold a D chord to tune the guitar and start on the bottom string and pick up. And that's how he would tune the guitar. I mean, most people tune the G string and then tune the D with it or go some other way and strum a G chord. Not Ken. <laughs> he picked up on the D chord. And uh, so I, I would see his hand when he was tuning it and he would check that D chord. I was watching him. I thought, that's interesting. I think I can figure that out and I'd go home and try to play that chord on this little harmony guitar my dad had bought at a thrift store or something and so I, that's where I first learned that and somewhere along the way I just kind of started noodling with the guitar and um, I started the mandolin when I broke my arm I broke my arm riding down a down a hill on my bicycle and my one of my best friends uh, Josh Payne his dog Georgia Brown ran out in front of my bike and I, I went I, I slammed on the brakes and I went straight over the handlebars and broke my left arm. Well, I was, had my arm in a cast and I couldn't play the banjo, couldn't reach the neck, you know. So, but I could the mandolin. And Dad had bought this little Sigma mandolin at this music store in Rocky Mountain, Virginia, and uh, still have that mandolin. And I learned the chords on the mandolin and I played the, I put the harmonica on a harmonica rack, and I entered this contest, strumming the mandolin and playing the harmonica, doing <laughs> with a broken wild, arm, <laughs> wildwood flower with a broken arm. Yeah. So, did you uh, win that? I think I did. They I can't really remember. They <laughs> took pity on me, I guess. <laughs> that was at Taylor's Park in Axton, Virginia. But so that was how I got into the mandolin, and you know, it just I I get obsessed with a certain thing, and I just spend a bunch of time on it, and that's kind of how I've branched out into the dis different instruments that I that I play. You know. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You start playing at an age that young, and by age nine, you're on Good Morning America, if I've learned <laughs> oh. correctly. <laughs> well, it wasn't. Uh, Hopefully your arm was out of the cast by the time Good yeah, Morning America came calling. It, it, it wasn't nine. You know what? I, it's funny you say that. I believe when they asked me my age, I said nine on there. I wasn't nine. <laughs> I remember when I, did, when I said that, and I heard it later, I thought, I'm not nine years old <laughs> it just come out of my mouth so if you've seen that i think i did say that i was 11 let's see that happened in 97 so was that 97 anyway i don't remember exactly when it was i was older than nine but not a whole lot i was 11 or 12 or something well like maybe that. you were just nervous when you said i was nine. nervous yeah oh, I was at least nervous. you were 12 and saying you're nine and yeah nine. 19 and saying you were not. Oh, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> how did that opportunity come about? Let me think about how did that happen. I don't really remember. Our parents, the band I was with, we started together when I was about 10, I guess, and we started. Not nine. Not nine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was me and um, uh, Mark Hudson and uh, Charlie Sheely, Joshua Yates were the original. I think by the time Good Morning America, we had Travis Fitzgerald and Jason Flinchin playing with us. And the band was called Shallow Creek. And uh, me and Mark are still really close friends now. And, uh, you know, we always get together and play music when we go home. Our parents, his grandparents, my parents, they sort of did all the stuff for us at that time. And 
I'd have to ask mom and dad how that happened because <laughs> I don't even know. But but they they came and filmed us at um, at Explore Park in Roanoke, Virginia, and um, a few other places that weekend. I don't really remember. But that was really interesting time being on Good Morning America Sunday. I think it was. So. <laughs> and it wasn't too many years later around what 16 or so not nine that yeah. you <laughs> released your first record for rebel records right yes um so yeah around that time i think 99 or 2000 shallow creek we kind of drifted in different directions and um um i kind of thought i should do some sort of recording myself you know and um i got connected with this guy named bob uh donaghy who had published the Bluegrass Yearbook. I don't know if you've ever seen that publication. Um, and um, he was connected with some of the record labels and such. And uh, so I did this little demo, and he shopped it around for me in Rebel Bit. And, um, you know, I went up there and talked to them, and uh, we ended up finishing the album. I'd done like six tracks, I think. And uh, that was how that happened. And um, it's very, I was thrilled because, you know, I've, I had the Ralph Stanley box set of uh, the 1971 to 73 on Rebel and the uh, Country Gentleman's recordings uh, from way back and, and so much Rebel stuff, you know, I'd listened to. So that was like, wow, I'm on Rebel? This is unbelievable, you know. <laughs> and um, so, uh, so yeah, I did that record then. That came out in 2001. And... Um, I look back and listen to it now. I'm like, Ugh, I, you know, you do something when you're 16 and 17, and you, and at 37, looking back on it, I think, now I know I could I could play a little better than some of the stuff on there, uh, even then. But I just I was so young. I just thought you just go in there and do it, and that's what happens, you know. <laughs> just tell folks you were nine. It'll yeah, be oh, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> I was nine. <laughs> I didn't know no better. <laughs> now, Karina, whereas Jeremy got bit with the bluegrass bug a little younger, you were a little bit more into your preteen, early teenage years when you got hooked on bluegrass, um, even though your your parents were big bluegrass fans. Um, what, at what point did you realize, okay, maybe this bluegrass music is for me after all? Well, I, you know, sort of touched on this, but, you know, growing up with, uh, with bluegrass, I always enjoyed it when I was a kid. You know, I got excited about it, and I, and and I don't know if I necessarily ever felt like I was making a, a choice about my favorite music and stuff like that. You know, you're a kid and you listen and you think, "Oh, this is cool. Oh, I like this." Um, and then you get a little older and you think, "What is it that I like?" You know. So, so um, I had I had played some guitar and some banjo, messed around with stuff like that when I was younger and uh, when I was a kid. And then, uh, you know, getting into your preteens, you get more opinionated and, and listening to more of the popular music and stuff like that. And I was very into into punk rock and, and different things like that. And uh, Jeremy's snickering. I, <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's so funny. It's, it's great. So, Who were some of your favorite rock bands? Well, you know, I liked a lot of this alt rock stuff. So, I mean, I was listening to Blink One Eighty Two and, yeah. and Lincoln Park and and Jimmy Eat World. I still love deeply. So, uh, 
<laughs> I was a big Avril Lavigne fan as yeah, well. Yeah. And so, you know, I go back and listen to some of this sometimes. And there was actually a St. Louis band uh, called Story of the Year. They, mm-hmm. had, yeah, yeah. they had a pretty big hit. And they were based out of St. Louis, from what I understand. And I loved all their stuff. And anyway, I was just... Uh, I was like, yeah, that's my music, you know. So I had asked my mom and dad on my 14th birthday for for a Stratocaster, a Fender Stratocaster. You know, like every year they're like, what do you want for your birthday? And I knew this was kind of a tall order. You know, I was like, well, I'd really like a Fender Stratocaster. I mean, I knew it might not happen, but I was putting it out there anyway. And I thought maybe they'll go in with me on one. And at the time, my mom and dad had gotten back into playing quite a bit more. Um, you know, I think they they felt like since I was a bit older, they could kind of go out and and uh, and go to a few more events. And maybe dad uh, thought I would get interested in in decent music. <laughs> in his opinion, you know, I don't know. But they Jeremy's had, keeping his opinions to himself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know exactly. You know, they, they just got back into, into playing quite a bit more. And every weekend, uh, my aunt and uncle, my cousin, my mom and dad, they'd be playing. And, uh, and you know, everybody had an instrument except for me. Uh, I just felt kind of redundant there. My mom played guitar. My dad played banjo. My aunt played bass. And uh, my uncle played guitar, and he would take leads. My mom strictly played rhythm, uh, except maybe on something like Under the Double Eagle. My cousin played mandolin. And so, uh, you know, I think that they were they were looking for something for me to do because a lot of times I go, oh, I don't want to, I, I don't need to be there, I, I, you know, and I'd go and draw something or watch anime or something. So, uh, anyway, I... There, there are not many uh, fiddle players where I'm from directly. Like uh, a lot of rich uh, fiddle players, uh, rich region of fiddle players in Missouri and stuff like that. But uh, where I'm from in Illinois, the closest one's like an hour away, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, I'm kind of rambling on a bit. But uh, as Jeremy said, long story short, for my 14th birthday, I got I got a fiddle instead of a Fender Fender Stratocaster and I opened this box and I'm thinking this is very small and and uh, a guitar don't fit in a box that size (laughs) (laughs) I opened it and was very disappointed (laughs) and I'm thinking what am I going to do with this and so mom and dad were very smart they said well we're gonna you know we're gonna go to Bean Blossom this week and you know this is all part of it you know you just see what you think and I don't know where they got this idea from anyway, except that they wanted to play with a fiddle player. <laughs> <laughs> so that week we went to Bean Blossom, and um, the first day there, we went on a weekend. And the first day there, the Lewis family was there, which was wonderful. And the second day there, I believe it was the second or third day, uh, Jesse McReynolds was there. And, of course, Jim and Jesse uh, had always been one of my favorites from when I was a kid. And I had actually been listening to some of their music before that when I was in my rock phase uh sort of trying to find myself and integrating all these different musics and uh, when I saw Jesse play I just that was it was almost a a very definitive moment that I was like I want to learn to play the fiddle and I want to learn to to play so I can be good enough to play with Jesse McReynolds literally that was the thought so at that point I mean it's like mom and dad created this perfect storm they gave me this fiddle and I'm looking to find myself and all these things and then they take me to Bean Blossom and I see Jesse play and I'm just like oh this is so great I am bit by the bug 
And um, Jimmy Martin was there that year, too. That was the, I believe that was the summer before he died. But I got to see a lot of, I got to see Charlie Waller before he passed away. And a lot of people at that festival. And um, it just, I just got bit by the bug. And I said, I got to learn how to play the fiddle. This is just the end of the story. So that's what started it all for me. So seeing Jesse, it just kind of like, that's your calling. That was it. It did. It just just flipped the switch. I think everything had been... uh, I, I don't know. I, th- I think sometimes dad has even said, he's like, I, I didn't know we were going to start a career for you. He's like, I just wanted somebody to play fiddle with. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it, it, it was great. It was, I think it was what I needed at the time. And it, it helped me have, have uh, some focus. You know, I was kind of off in all sorts of things. I was like writing novels and comic books and, and all sorts of things. And, uh, and I don't know, I think about it quite a bit. It's interesting to, to, trace your whole life uh career to one point like that but everything before that had been leading up to it too so it's a very kind of uh interesting story <laughs> and, and that passion developed so deeply so suddenly that you, that was 14 and by the time you graduated high school you enrolled in a music program at belmont right yes i uh i was actually a music business major and uh i was in a program there called the honors program and they allow you to customize your study. So I was able to actually create a second major where I used, uh, I took uh, some private lessons. So I was able to study with Buddy Spiker and a fellow there named Tracy Silverman, who's a great jazz violinist. Uh, did some songwriting classes, some audio engineering classes and things like that. And I created a second major called Artist Production. So that was my fun part. And then uh, the music business was the the serious part. And I I went to Belmont thinking, um, well, I will will be able to um, maybe work in the music industry and play on the side. And by my junior year there, uh, after an internship, I thought, I I just don't think I'm going to be able to have an office job. I I just was so miserable trying to do that sort of thing. And I said, when I graduate, I'm going to give it a year and I'm going to freelance. She's got too much energy for a desk job, doesn't she, Jeremy? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So anyway, that's that's how I got into doing what I was doing. You know, the Lord sustained me that first year. And I said, well, let's give it a second year. And, you know, just go just went from there. So I was able to study a little bit of music at Belmont. um, But primarily my studies were in music business. What, what was the, you know, moving to Nashville from Illinois, uh, that had to be, especially you said, you know, there weren't that many fiddle players around where you're at. When you moved to Nashville, I mean, you could throw a boomerang through the room and hit about eight fiddle players, you know, at least <laughs> they're there if you want to find them. Sure. And what was that like going from uh, where your musical mentors were a little more limited to where there's a a plethora of knowledge in Music City. It was amazing. Uh, I knew from when I stepped, this is another thing, I just, I have these like moments in my life, I guess. I knew when I stepped on the campus at Belmont the year before that, when I went to visit, I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. And when I got to Nashville, it was, it was just, I knew I was home and being around all these people, these creative people, even like, you know, the students there at Belmont, pe- fiddle players there, getting to play with people, making friends with people, uh, going to, you know, riding with people, going to jams and uh, being close to it. My first year there, I, I, I uh, visited Jim Buchanan and he's been a mentor to me for a long time. And, you know, just being in this area where you're close to all these people, it was 
I was soaking it up like a sponge. It was it was life changing for me. You know, hanging out with people like Buddy Spiker and Jim Buchanan, exactly. that just make your little fiddle playing heart so happy. Didn't exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was it was just it was instrumental in my life for sure. It, you you said you started doing some you know freelance work and you're and you're playing music there in Nashville. What was the what was the first gig you got when you moved to Nashville? Well, at the time I was playing still with. Um, with the Harmons, who's a group from home, Mike Harmon uh, was actually one of the founders of Union Station. Yes. They hired Allison Krauss. <laughs> Union Station went on to become Allison Krauss and Union Station. But uh, I continued playing with the Harmons, being at at, uh, at Belmont, and they would come through and pick me up, or I would drive up and and uh, and play shows and stuff with them. I'm trying to think uh, outside of that, what was my first gig it was probably something with a singer songwriter um because you meet a lot of those folks i know i did a lot of uh sort of belmont area recording sessions my first year there whether it was in somebody's dorm room or uh one of the studios there but i'll have to think on that what my first uh nashville gig was (laughs) how long was it before you got to work with jesse mcreynolds the first time i got to um I got to work with Jesse was actually, I believe, right before I went to Belmont in 2008, August 2008. Um, I've been friends with Buddy Griffin for a long time, and he had told me, he said, uh, he knew that I, I just longed to get to work with Jesse, and he said, uh, Jesse is playing in Altamont, Illinois, and he doesn't have a fiddle player. And he said, I told him uh, that you could be there and uh, if it works out that you could play some fiddle with him and when I got to Altamont uh, I you know knocked on the bus door and I was just shaking and uh, Jesse said oh it's you he knew me but he didn't realize that I played uh, played fiddle and he said uh, oh wow I didn't know you played fiddle and he said well go get your fiddle and I didn't even bring stage clothes I wore one of Amanda Lynn McReynolds dresses and played played on stage with Jesse that night and uh, there was another fiddle player there too that was a, a local fella but that was the first time I got to work with him so that was four years after I started playing but to uh, work with him in in a professional way um, that wasn't just you know show up and yeah come on up here and play some fiddle with me um, was in 2016, February 2016, and um, we had just, uh, this was another connection with Buddy. Uh, he said something about Jesse doing this fiddle record, which was sort of his, a tribute to his grandpa and his fiddle roots. Uh, it's out now. Jesse McReynolds plays the Bull Mountain Moonshiner's Way, I believe is the title. Uh, Jesse McReynolds and Friends or something like that. And uh, anyway, Buddy was recording uh, with Jesse, and he said uh, he said he was up there, and I don't remember. He said something about getting lunch with him or something up there, and he said, "Why don't you stop by the studio on your on your way out?" And um, we stopped by, and Jesse said he handed me his grandpa's fiddle, and he said, "Check this out, you know." And then he said, "Why don't you Why don't you and Buddy just play play something on here?" We ended up recording, uh, I don't even know, at least a song or two, and. Uh, Jesse called me the next day or the day after and said, would you be available to work the Opry this weekend? (laughs) I just couldn't (laughs) believe it. So um, I said, yeah. (laughs) I would hope so. (laughs) Yes, actually, it was it was February 2016 is when I got to do my first, you know, actual, 
gig where he called me and I came and worked the Opry. And uh, so let's see, 2016, and I started in 2004. So however long that would be. Like 12 years 12 and it years. came full go. circle. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That, she's sitting over here just, just grinning, just thinking about Jesse. Yeah, so. <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. It's so, I mean, it's, it's amazing, you know, when you grow up listening to these people and you're like, oh, I love this. And, and, then, and then that's a catalyst to make you start your career. And then to see, I, I had honestly sort of given up on the idea because I knew Jesse had the folks that he used. And, and uh, I just, I had sort of put that on the shelf and thought if, you know, it was good enough that I had gotten to do the show with him at Altamont. And uh, I thought that was awesome. And to, you know, get to work with him in that way. But uh, for that to happen and then to be on a, on a regular call list with him and, and work the Opry regularly. I mean, Jeremy and I worked it regularly with Jesse for two years before he um, had some other health things that sort of interrupted that. And then it was on a, I mean, not, I would say still regularly until mm-hmm. um, 2020. But until, until COVID kind of put a pause on, right. pause on that. Yeah. Right. But um, but yeah, it's just it's hard to believe uh, when I sit back and think about it and think that's a, I mean, it's just hard. It's hard to put in words how awesome it is. And to think that that person has just inspired so much of your life path and then you're getting to work with them. And uh, and one of the one of the coolest and weirdest things has been just in traveling with Jesse, realizing all these interesting personality similarities we have. And sometimes I think like we're we're drawn to people who are similar to us without even knowing that that you know how their personalities are just from the music that they play. You know, it's like you when you hear someone's music, you're hearing part of their personality and their individuality and and um, all that creativity from their soul. Yeah. <laughs> and then us, me and Jeremy, getting to travel with Jesse and stuff. It's like wow, this is just so so cool. Just get getting to know him as a person has been incredible. What are some of the biggest lessons you've learned from Jesse as a person, not just as a as a musician? What do you think, Jeremy? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I would say one of them, uh, not to hog up the microphone here, because yeah, I want to no. hear what you have to say. But, but he, uh, Jesse, is so resilient. He absolutely, he's uh, thinking about all of the things he's gone through in his life. He's the oldest member of his family, um, and he's <laughs> he called me the other day and he said, he said, you know, I, I of course at ninety two. I can't. I know I can't expect too much. He said, "I've already broken all the records." <laughs> I said, "That's right, you have." And um, so he's he's so resilient. It's inspiring to watch him, and it's inspiring to think about everything he went through. You know, he's a, he's a veteran. He's he's seen so much hardship, and here he is still, you know, getting out there and trying to trying to get it, and still creating, still making music. Um, and still wanting to get out there and do things, that tenacity, that resilience, and and also looking at their career, Jim and Jesse's that is, um, their creativity and their perseverance with a lot of things. They they were so talented, and when you when you really dig into it, you find out all these all these things they were they were creative and original, but there wasn't always um, a market for that. 
There wasn't always a, a box for them to go into. And so they would come up with their own thing, just like, you know, they finally said, well, we're starting our own record label then, and we're going to make our own records. And this was a, like a long time before most bluegrass artists were doing that. And so that is inspiring in an individual, personal way and in a business way when you see all these moves that they made to continue to really be their own artists, um, represent themselves in the way they wanted to be represented, work in the way that they wanted to work, and put themselves into their music. I, I think for me what has impressed me most about Jesse as a person is his just complete honesty. He's, you know, he'll, he, he can talk about things that happened in the old days or whatever, and um, if he wasn't in the right or, or doing something he shouldn't have been doing, he's honest about that. And, he doesn't try uh, to sugarcoat it to yeah, make himself look right, good. right, right. And, um, you know, I, I've talked to a lot, of, a lot of different people about things that happened in the past and all, and, and they'll, you know, you, you don't always know if you're getting the exact story the way it is. But, but They might with, try to downplay any mistakes that they've made. Right, but with Jesse, he's, he's forthright and honest and in his dealings as well. Um, just, um, you know, he's just a really genuine person. Yeah, he's very, uh, Jesse's just an incredible individual. And in that, in that, uh, that honesty and that, um, forthrightness, he's always positive too. He's always got something, you know, it's a lot of people will, will dwell on things or they'll say, Oh, I just wish we shouldn't have done that or this and that. And, um, you know, oh, if, if only we hadn't done this, we could have really made it big, you know. And Jesse can talk about what what they went through, and he'll say, you know, then that's when that's when this happened, and so we went on to here, and you know, here I am now. You know, it's like he has a way of uh, there's a there's a term for that that they talk about now. I think there's an actual like psychological term where you you don't dwell on uh, mistakes, you you bounce you not necessarily even bounce back, but you move on to the next thing. You focus on what what is now, what is positive, and what is, um, I don't know, that's just, that's, it's a way of life with him, and uh, that I think is cultivated from, from that generation, even. I can remember my grandparents um, being similar to that, too, going through just these crazy challenges, and then, and then saying, you know, but it led to this, and and here we are now, and you know, and and that's just that's just remarkable to witness that, and to be around people that are um, just these giants of people, like in in personal in in a personal way, in a business way, in a star way, and then hearing him just uh, be so candid and yeah. and generous and honest and and um, positive at the same time. So I've got to ask, everybody wants to play the Opry, but not everybody gets to play the Opry with their hero. So what was that like the first time you walked onto the Opry stage with Jesse McReynolds? Well, I can honestly say um, I've heard Connie Smith talk about playing the Opry the first time, and she said her her knees were literally shaking, and that is exactly what happened to me. I was literally, sh- I was terrified, and I... Um, I've always been one of these people. It's like, well, if you practice enough, then you don't have to be nervous. And yeah, I was nervous. That went out the window. <laughs> I was so nervous, but luckily, providentially rather, I, I had practiced enough to where I was able to uh, to play through that. And it was, uh, there's no words for it. It was just incredible. 
there is one essential item that bluegrassers need to take with them to a festival, it is a good lawn chair. We all need a lawn chair. We've all had problems when we've had a crappy lawn chair. Enter Lawn Chair USA. Lawn Chair USA are made in the USA folding aluminum lawn chairs. They are the number one supplier of folding lawn chairs. By folding lawn chairs, I mean the old school ones, you know, the ones that were really sturdy, the ones that don't feel like you're sitting in a hammock, the ones that don't tear, the ones that don't wind up at the end of the road at the end of the season. I'm talking a solid Made in the USA, well-built lawn chair. LawnchairUSA.com slash walls of time for your new favorite lawn chair. And trust me, it's one you can use to sit on the edge of your seat at your next bluegrass festival. Use code walls of time to save 10% at Lawn Chair USA. And now back to walls of time. So uh, you came to Nashville because of Belmont University mm-hmm. and you came to Nashville because of her, pretty much, yeah, right? Yeah, that's, that's, that's right, yeah. Yeah, we'd met in 2009, and <clears throat> really, you know, we talked a lot that year and, and uh, in 2010 as well. And, uh, yeah, so I, I came to Nashville so we could date, basically. <laughs> <laughs> we, we say that uh, that's 100% true, but there was also another reason, too. You, you got a, a pretty cool gig at that time too yes uh, with uh, one of the most historic bands and uh, kind of country gospel right yeah so I, I was actually looking for work so that I could afford to rent a place and be in Nashville and um, so I um, we were at IBMA in Nashville in 2010 and um, a friend of mine Brennan Ernst we were hanging out or I walked by and he was playing this guitar it was a blonde hollow body um gibson guitar it actually belongs to danny nicely and um i saw that and i thought now that kind of reminds me of the electric guitar that howard gordon played with the chuck wagon gang anyway i knew the chuck wagon gang and met them through cecil hall who um the the guy that wrote could i knock on your door that i've got on my uh the first single on my new record and everything and um, <clears throat> so I'd gotten connected with the Chucks through him and um, had their number in my phone. Well, anyway, like nine the next morning after I had seen Brennan playing that guitar and thought about, oh, if I could get work with the Chuck Wagon Gang, you know, it's less than 12 hours later. My phone rings, and I pick it up, and it says, Chuck Wagon Gang. I'm like, what? <laughs> I was just talking about them last night. <laughs> Hello, Lord. <laughs> How does this happen? You know, and um, it was uh, Dave Emery uh, who was sort of he was managing the Chuck Wagon Gang at the time, playing guitar and singing bass. Uh, he's recently passed, um, and um, he said, "You know, Jeremy, we're um, needing someone to fill in for Stan on uh, tenor, uh, singing tenor, and for a time you can play guitar too." And I was like, "Wow." This is amazing, and um, so that's how it happened. I started filling in. Uh, Stan came back. His wife was going through cancer treatments. He was out for that time with her, and um, he came back after she got through the treatments and was doing better, and they wanted to keep me. So I started, I guess it was in November of 2010, and I stayed all the way through the end of 2016. Wow. So that was through all the time. quite a stretch. I was able to buy a house, and we got married. Um, high fidelity started in that time. A lot of things 
you know, were uh, able to happen because of the time I was with the Chuck Wagon Gang. You mentioned that you were playing guitar with them. Their guitar style is so unique. What What are some things that really differentiate that style of guitar compared to, you know, maybe more bluegrass-centric guitar that folks might be used to hearing? Yeah, so there's two really specific uh, styles for the Chuck Wagon Gang um, that you know, would be considered from their classic era, which is from 1936 to 1967. And they had two different guitar players in that era. The first guitar player was the older son, uh, Jim Ernest was his actual name um, in the family there. He played guitar, acoustic guitar, and sang bass. And uh, he always played a... um, acoustic guitar uh, he was a flat top gibson or of like a little arch top k craft guitar or something like that and it's basically like traditional bluegrass rhythm except he uses closed chords for the most part and so you get this and he lets off uh, on the left hand so you kind of get this staccato type uh, rhythm boom chuck boom chuck without the chuck ringing so you almost so you know i'm not a musician like y'all are but so it sounds like it almost has a little bit of a chop type feel mm-hmm. to that style of rhythm yes. like you would on a mandolin but applied more to a guitar setting that is that is very true and and of course the the kickoff to their records is him strumming the chord and that's very distinctive as well you know for the full six string like f-shaped tor- chord it goes bond da 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 you know like that and um so the next, he was on the recordings through 1953, and a- after him, um, his sister Anna, who's the alto singer, her husband Howard Gordon played electric guitar on all the recordings, and he sort of kept the the strum intro the same, timed out very similar, but uh, he played a, a style of rhythm that that does not have a chop at all to it. It's a roll almost. And uh, and when you hear the records, it almost kind of sounds like a wash sometimes, you know, just kind of chords happening in the background. But but he sort of rolled through the chords um, more than going boom chuck boom chuck, you know. Did you grow up listening to Chuck Wagon Gang? Um, you know, my grandfather um, he sang. He had a quartet uh, in church. He led the singing in his church. Charter member of his church started back in the fifties and. Um, was still connected to that church, you know, all, all uh, well, he's a nursing home now, but uh, has remained connected to the church his whole life. And um, so they loved all of that old type of gospel music and such, and uh, he liked male quartets a lot, but they had Chuck Wagon Gang records as well. And I, when I was probably 13 and it had started collecting records, I, I rated their record collection, you know. They had a one of those big consoles that had where you could, put LPs in one side and I dug through and uh, the stuff that appealed to me was the Chuck Wagon Gang because it had a guitar and it's singing you know I pulled all those records out and that's where I first got exposed to them and um, just really liked it and they talked about seeing the Chuck Wagon Gang uh, live in person I think in Lynchburg or, or Alta Vista Virginia one in the 60s and I think that may have been where they bought the records too and, you know and for folks that aren't aware they were Chuck Wagon Gang were huge stars oh, in their time. Oh yes, they they've sold. I mean, they've sold millions upon millions of records on Columbia, yeah. which is a huge you know record label. I think they were with Columbia. I mean, different iterations of what the company was, but essentially from I mean, 
American Record Corporation in the 30s, which Columbia absorbed, I think. Uh, yeah, so from 36 to 1975, they were on Columbia. That's crazy. That's unbelievable. I mean, yeah. one time we were in, like, in my area of the country, and Jeremy yeah. just started, I think you just started singing Church in the Wildwood randomly. Yeah, we were in we were in the Coles department store in Swansea, Illinois, I think, or O'Fallon, one of those towns up there uh, east of St. Louis. And uh, I was ready for Karina. She was looking at clothes or something. I'm ready to get out of there. I've never been into shopping, and she hadn't really either. But I don't she was even look- remember what we were looking she for. She was looking at something, and, and, and I got out there in the aisle, and I said, come, 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 because I was ready to go. And this little lady pops up from behind a rack of clothing, and uh, she goes, come to the church in the world. <laughs> You gotta be kidding yeah. me! So that that right there will tell you how huge the Chuck Wayne gang was. I've told that story a lot from the stage with the Chuck Wayne gang, and you're probably like, I found the kindred spirit with yeah, this yeah, old right, woman. Right. It was hilarious. I couldn't believe you can't write stuff like that, you know. Yeah. Uh, what, what was that like to get to be a part of their legacy? Which, I mean, in 2021, we're, we're re- when we are recording this, they've been at it 85 years. Yeah. And to be a part of that oh, of that yeah. legacy has to be pretty pretty uh, pretty special. Unbelievable. Uh, it's just you know I look back and I think wow you know that for a, a group that uh, had the influence that they had on on country artists and bluegrass artists and and just all kinds of genres you know people grew up here in the chuck wagon gang for me to be a part of that is 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 unbelievable and it's a major major blessing and i'd say you know so much of me and jeremy's life uh we just see the lord's timing and so much of it and yeah uh when jeremy got to join the chuck wagon gang it was just it worked in all these amazing ways it was like you know he was able to move to nashville he was able to have a a music uh, a music job playing professionally and and then it was at a time period where there was this real interest in this uh, reconnaissance of the traditional chuckwagon gang and so in the time jeremy was with them uh, they did the marty stewart project and recorded all around like, like a single microphone mm-hmm. and and there was just a real interest in digging back into that and uh, i think jeremy was uh, I'd, li- I'd like to think that Jeremy is uh, was influential in that coming from the historic standpoint, but there was other things working to make that a thing too, and so it just was really at this really special time in their career uh, when they were you know celebrating these milestones, looking back and digging into their history. Yeah, you mentioned uh, uh, becoming more aware of the Chuck Wagon Gang through your record collecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are one of the premier you know, record collectors in Roots Music. How did you first get into that as a hobby? Well, um, you know, I've always kind of had these sort of things in the back of my mind growing up that, that um, maybe for a time I'd, I felt like there was something that I would be interested in, but I wasn't really sure what it was, and then I would realize it, and they're like, yeah, I should look into that. One of those things was eating tuna, and I, <laughs> I just randomly thought, seems like tuna would be good. I, I don't know, but I see those cans, and I thought, eh, that would be good. And I had Mom buy a can of tuna for me one time in the grocery store. I'm like, oh, gosh, yeah, this is great. It's just like I thought it would be, <laughs> even though I didn't really have any clue, you know. Record collecting was And your parents of- were upset about you. <laughs> Not knowing how to play the fiddle yet. <laughs> He's over here. 
you know, you're listening to rock music and drawing pictures. He's he's really <laughs> big tuna guy over here. This guy's serious about his chunk light tuna. Oh yeah, chunk light, and it started with salt with a. a a soft white albacore, and it, that doesn't didn't cut it, you know. I mean, it was good at first, and like there's something better, you know, chunk light. That's it. Um, anyway, boy, that's an aside I've never even talked about, do, but it's been. Do in you my collect head. tuna cans too? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I collect them in the trash can <laughs> after I've eaten them. Um, so I never know, knew there was. I do. Knew there was someone was so passionate about the canned tuna. You know, I have this snack bag I keep with me on the road, which is like things that I know I can eat if we're in a pinch. But I do have a couple cans of tuna in there for Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. So there you how go. does that relate to records? Well, I'm about to get there. So, so record collecting was something like similar for me in that, and it was like I, I don't know. It, it's like there was. I felt like it was something I was missing in, in all this music stuff. And at some point, it seemed like, I think I should collect records. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I used to listen to this show, um, the Saturday Night Hall of Fame, uh, which was hosted by Kenny Rohr, who's a major record collector, and he lives in Danville. And um, that show went off the air. The station canned the show. And um, it was really upsetting to me. And I got connected with Kenny. But right before that, I had had this record-collecting thing. And, um, you know, how one of the ways that I, I got connected with even knowing about Kenny Rohr and that, and that radio show was my babysitters. Before I ever went to school, um, I stayed with, with babysitters. And they, um, well, you know, we talk about industrial strength. Uh, bluegrass and and the Appalachian migration and all that sort of thing and people moving from the mountains to the uh, up here uh, and Ohio to work in the uh, steel mills and, and, and whatever industries there were up here um, my I don't know if that's the case or not but um, my babysitters were definitely from a similar um, background as that they worked in the mills and um, liked country music and things like that and um, <clears throat> so that and and also my babysitter's husband C.C. Dodd was his name and uh, he's gone now but he went to flea markets and he bought cast iron skillets and old pots and records and just all kinds of stuff he collected and, and um, I um, I got exposed to the music originally through him but um, when I had that interest in records that sort of came to me or whatever I called them and he said yeah I've got some old records down here and I went over there and um, or dad or mom took me over there I guess and uh, I bought all the 78s he had and in that in that batch of records were there were nine Carter families there were um, four or five I think Jimmy Rogers two of the same one which is probably one of the rarest records I've ever found uh, the Southern Cannonball it's a really rare uh, Jimmy Rogers record and and uh, a host of, of other records I don't remember what all of them are I've got them all written down so I know what they are but um, that was my start into collecting and um, and then from there I got connected with Kenny Rohr after his radio show was was canned on the local radio station in Danville and uh, Boy, it just hit the big time then. I ended up trading one of those Jimmy Rogers to Kenny for a Reno and Smiley 
um, dot 78, and that kind of was the beginning of it, you know, and uh, um, I don't remember if I've answered the question or not, but that's, I've rambled a lot. What's the, what's the uh, most intriguing aspect about trying to find these old records and the swapping and the buying and the trading that goes along with it? For me, it's usually I'm wanting to know what the music sounds like. Um, I mean, there's a degree of it for me that is about having the actual record, and, and especially for groups that I'm really into, like Reno and Smiley, you know, yeah, I want all their records. I want the actual physical record if, if I can. Um, but it's really cool to have things that are rare and uh, stuff like that. But if I'm just out hunting, and I know that's a rare record, I'll pick that up. But also, I pick up other things. I'm like, I don't really know what this is, but I'm, I'd be curious to hear. So that's a, a lot of the lure. Um, lure, I should say, uh, to me is the different music I've never heard. Kind of like trying tuna. You might try yeah, this. Yeah, that's new, right. Try this new <laughs> band or artist or record, right? <laughs> exactly Chunk white, right. soft white albacore. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that Jeremy. You know, that is interesting because Jeremy is somebody who enjoys trying new things. He's like, that sounds interesting. I think I'd like to try that. And we'll go. You know, if we end up in a in a thrift store or something, he'll say, this sounds interesting. And that's sort of how Jeremy's gotten into a lot of different things is just being curious. He's very curious. Jeremy's very much a cat that's very curious. Sometimes that, sometimes that bites him, but, (laughs) but he's found a lot of great things that way. And, um, and sometimes it'll be like, oh, this record's not that great, (laughs) but there's a lot of things. I mean, I think that might even be how you got into the Stewart family. I don't. I don't remember exactly. But. Uh, yeah, that was actually Jim Nelson. Okay. Um, he uh, he put together a couple of gospel CDs. Uh, he's a friend of ours in St. Louis, who's a record collector. And uh, yeah, I love the Stewart family. And High Fidelity has done a lot of their material as well. And that I have to thank Jim Nelson for that connection. Well, what are some of your favorite uh, gems that you've got in your collection? I know you have quite an extensive record collection, but what are some of your 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 favorite gems or some of the, the, the rarest ones you have in your collection? Yeah, um, as far as rareness goes, I don't know what the rarest things are that I have, but um, my favorite gems are, are my Stewart family, 78s, and um, I collect um, uh, Freddie Rose as well. He was um, he is the Fred Rose of Acuff Rose Publishing, produced and wrote, you know, with... Hank Williams and all those great country artists, but he had a he had a professional music career before the war. Um, I think he worked out of Chicago, maybe, and um, also in Nashville, and recorded for Brunswick and Vocalion and Decca. And I've got quite a few of his records, and it's um, stride piano and tenor pop vocal and that's it. It's him and the piano. And there's a few things that's of uh, his records that have other instruments, but um, <clears throat> I remember hearing, uh, watching the movie High Lonesome as a teenager, me and Mark Hudson and the guys in Shallow Creek, man, we would get together and we watched High Lonesome and, and the, uh, Bluegrass Country Soul. You can't, I can't count the amount of times we watched those two films over and over and over. And we knew every mo- every moment in the films. And there's a, there's a couple of snips in there that um, they're talking about the advent of radio, and and you hear this, 
I can't even remember what the song is, but but you hear this this crooner vocal come across, and I always heard that, and I thought, oh, I really like that. I don't, but I don't really know what you call that, or or you know, it sounds like twenties or thirties music, but um, it never hit. All the music I found never hit that same spot in me until I found Fred Rose, and um, so I, I'm I'm really proud of of the collection i have of his 78s and uh, his singing and, and and piano playing is just i just love it really love if, it if any folks that are listening to this maybe want to get started into record collecting mm-hmm. but uh, maybe they're a little nervous about it what what sort of advice would you give them to to start down that path um well you know record collecting it's easier now than it's ever been with ebay and and uh, things like that but uh, i would say you know, um, if you if you know the kind of music you like, you kind of know what to kind of go looking for. But if you're just interested in collecting records, get a, you know, search around on eBay or go to your local thrift store and um, buy a batch of records that you don't really know what they are and listen to them and, and kind of figure out what strikes your fancy. They're cheap at, at thrift stores, and if you buy a whole... Um, Passel of records, even on eBay, you're probably going to get a pretty good deal, and and that's really what I what I did. You know, when and any record collector when they start collecting, they just buy everything. Oh, here's a record, <laughs> I buy that, and I'll see what that is. And you hone down the things that you like as you buy uh, more stuff, and then if you don't like them, you know, donate them back to the local Salvation Army or whatever. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was a. Uh... You moved to Nashville after you joined up with the Chuck Wagon mm-hmm. Gang, and uh, you know you got Karina that's ate up with Jim and Jesse, and uh, you're ate up with Reno and Smiley, and you guys both both like both of those groups. Right. You're working with the Chuck Wagon Gang. How did all those influences and all these fates and paths cross and come together to create High Fidelity? Well, I'll say, um, you know, we we I think we briefly mentioned our friend Kurt Stevenson, mm-hmm. and. Um, when we, uh, Jeremy and I and Kurt have always had a kind of a familial bond, I guess, with the, the music. And we're all only children. And um, we've always enjoyed playing together. And for forever, we would hang out and say, we need to have a band together. We need to have a band together. And, uh, yeah, wouldn't it be cool if we could do some shows together? And we would try to, you know, get on some different things. Or Kurt would get something, and he'd get Jeremy to come play mandolin, and he'd play fiddle or something. And and uh, I did, like, my college thesis project. I was I got Jeremy and Kurt to sing on that stuff and, and play some on some of them when Kurt could get off work and all this stuff. Anyway, we, um, in 2014, uh, we were all available to do the Spigma Band Contest. And... So Kurt called me, and he called Jeremy, and he said, what would you think about getting a band together to do this Bigma Band Contest? And we said, well, this is the year to do it because we're all around. See, so many times Jeremy would be on a cruise with the Chuck Wagon Gang, and so he would be out of pocket. Well, that particular year, they got back, I think the week before that or a few days before that, just the way it all worked out. And I was uh, doing the Bluegrass in the Schools program with Vicki in Owensboro at the time, and... Um, it just all worked out that the other folks available, me and Kurt were calling folks to fill out the band because you had to have a five-piece band to enter the Spigma Band Contest. And uh, we had talked about doing this for years, and it just never really lined up. Anyway, um, 
the ones who could do it and were available were Daniel and Vicky. And we said, well, what kind of stuff should we do? And, and we had talked about, uh, you know, we'd like to do the traditional bluegrass, this brand that is not being, uh, we didn't feel was represented enough. And so for me, I said, you know, I want to do a bunch of Reno and Smiley and Jim and Jesse stuff. And Kurt, uh, Kurt was cool with that. And, of course, we all loved Don and Red's music. And, uh, and Kurt also really loves the Stanley Brothers and um, Jeremy and I had, well, all of us really had dug deep into the Leuven's music, too, and felt that a lot of that would make great bluegrass, uh, especially in framing it in like a Reno and Smiley or Jim and Jesse context. And Jeremy has just always loved Charlie Monroe as well. So when we got together and, and started working up songs for this Bigma Band contest, it seemed that our strengths and our interests and what we felt we could contribute to that band contest all intersected with the uh the bands i just mentioned and so we focused on doing jim and jesse type songs and reno and smiley type songs stanley brothers Louvins, charlie munro um also uh jeremy mentioned our friend jim nelson he got us on to uh, james and martha carson mm-hmm. and they had a tremendous uh duet career before martha carson became a country star and so we pulled in songs from them and all that sort of thing and we actually uh we're all really interested in in styles you know like jeremy plays all these different styles and they all sound if you closed your eyes it might sound like a different person's playing all these different things and kurt's the same way and uh they both have inspired me to be able to do that uh, you know, really try to hone in on that sort of thing. So we wanted to sort of give this uh, sampling of styles, and yet it was coming through us and coming out, and so it was sounding like our own thing. Um, but we talked about what did we want represented. Every round that we got through, we said, well, what do we want to do? And every time we'd say, well, do we want to mash one just to sh- say we can, you know? <laughs> show people we know how to play modern bluegrass too and it was going so well with the traditional more traditional type feel of everything every time it came down to it we said "Ah, let's just maybe we should just stick with the more traditional thing so high fidelity almost mashed a song in the spigma band contest (laughs) but we we didn't we won't tell anybody (laughs) (laughs) we were you know we it's it's interesting because i remember that and i don't know would we have you know done as well if we'd done that or would the would the judges say oh well this is not really as special as i thought uh, but we thought it might be confusing since we were already on to this more traditional thing. And it was sort of coming together on its own. So um, I guess I can't, like Jeremy said, I can't remember if I've totally answered your question. But the, the, the groups that we brought into it, the style that we brought into it, is sort of what we felt like were our strengths and what we could add to the bluegrass landscape of things. And somewhere in between all of that, is the inter- the intersection of that all is is what high fidelity does shh i've got a secret my name is santana mullins daniel mullins's wife and for the last year i've been stealing from him don't tell him, but I've been using a shampoo and conditioner from Samson's Hair Care. I noticed that even at the end of the day, 
Daniel's hair was still soft to the touch and smelled better than mine, so I had to sneak and give it a try. And I'm glad that I did. I have fallen in love. It's the only brand of shampoo and conditioner I've found that holds their scent all day while leaving my hair feeling soft and well-nourished. If you want to see for yourself, visit samsonshaircare.com. Use code BLUEGRASS to save on your order. That's samsonshaircare.com, code BLUEGRASS. Ladies, be sure to buy your man Samson's shampoo and conditioner. You'll both thank me. And now back to Walls of Time. What was it like when the two of you and Kurt uh, and, and Vicky and Daniel all kind of came together and realized you were all kind of kindred spirits and in your, your interests in this, you know, deep, rich well of bluegrass music, where as a lot of people your age might kind of not dig nearly as deep as you guys have? Well, I'd say, you know, uh, Vicky and Daniel, they have they have really kind of, they, they did not come from a traditional uh, background like uh, like me and Jeremy and Kurt have, but they were very open to a lot of stuff. So, you know, when we got together, they were kind of like, you know, we're not as familiar with this sort of music. So, um, you know, we want to learn about what is appropriate. And, you know, at the same time, they're adding their own touch to it, which is another thing that I think makes another thing that makes high fidelity unique um because really uh they had not dug as deep as like what we had with with getting into the history and and stuff like that but i think that our uh our passion for just creating good music was really that was the the focus in that and and it's amazing to think, you know, these are the people that were available and it just clicked right away from the beginning. Just our, our personalities and our uh, our dynamics and it's just crazy to think it was sort of a random thing, you know, <laughs> and we still talk about it. We're like, it, did you ever think when we entered the Spigma Band Contest that we would be, you know, in wherever it was the other week Kurt went with us to uh San Diego out to Summergrass and we're like did you ever think you'd be in San Diego you know <laughs> however many years later playing at the Summergrass festival you know it's it's just it's fascinating and and something that's been um a really important aspect for high fidelity has been our faith because we're we're all uh, we all profess uh the Lord Jesus Christ and uh, as our savior and in, in follow in that path and so that has just been an amazing um way to sort of be connected and have this deeper relationship and this family type bond as a band and yeah it's it's musical it's friendship it's it's like a family and it's it's fellow believers and it's it's special. I think the Lord just did all that. I mean, there's no way we could have just chosen the right combination like that, but it's been, it's been amazing. And we couldn't imagine high fidelity, you know, being anything else than what it is right now. Right. What are some of the ways that you you mentioned your faith. What are some of the ways that your faith impacts some of the decisions you guys make as a band? Mm, wow. That's, that's interesting. It's very inter- it's very very much a part of of everything we do. Um, mm-hmm. I think of specific. I mean, we try to be very forthright and and honest in all of our um, business dealings, 
you know, with uh, promoters and within the band, you know, as well. Karina and I handle the uh, the finances of the group, and I do the booking, and um, you know, we handle the CD the product sales and and all that stuff, and uh, you know, so we we always send out you know, like breakdowns of. Uh, we're behind this year, but uh, <laughs> but we of, of the sales and that sort of thing. You know, everybody. So we're everything's completely out in the open. You know that that's one way. Uh, we're just trying to be very forthright and honest with with all the dealings there. I think uh, um, I think that our faith and our um, connection that way provides an environment where everybody feels um, that they can be open. And that they can bring challenges, they can bring uh, potential problems or problems or whatever conflicts, whatever it is. It feels like inherently there's gonna it's it's a safe place because um, because we there, we know that there's forgiveness. There's always forgiveness available, and and that's sort of you know the the bottom line of of Christian faith is is forgiving others and. You know, the Lord died for us to save us when, you know, to forgive us from our sins. And we didn't do anything for it. It was just a gift. And so all of that infuses our business dealings. So people can feel safe to bring something and say, you know, know, I'm having a problem with this or what are we going to do about this? There's a lot of times that uh, we, we pray together as a band. Um, if we're looking for an answer, if, you know, before shows, there's a lot of times we'll pray together. We try to do that pretty regularly, but we forget a lot of times, but, (laughs) but, um, it's just, uh, it's a special environment where everybody can feel like, even if we don't agree or, you know, and we're not all, you know, the same denominations and stuff like that, but but knowing that forgiveness and that grace that sort of undergirds the band, knowing that that's fundamental, um, it creates a safe environment where everybody can feel respected, and if there is a problem or or a concern or, or something like that, they know that they're going to be they're going to be respected, and if it's not, um, if somebody's in the wrong, they're going to, you know, try to make amends for that, and we try to get it fixed and uh it just it it it's a totally it's a totally different environment than I've ever been part of just having that uh undergirding the entire business model yeah what are some of the biggest challenges uh that you guys face on taking uh musical traditions that are 60 70 years old a lot of times even older and trying to present them to a 21st century audience <laughs> i keep looking at jeremy because i don't want to like yeah, talk no, and talk and I, talk. i'm not sure if i know how to answer that question it may do you have a well i think one of the ways like when we entered the spigma band contest and we've we've talked about this quite a bit uh, me and jeremy and kurt uh, even getting into it is we said we we need our musicianship and our singing to be uh, as virtuosic as virtuosic as it can be you know um, the music of the 21st century is is just so perfect and clean and and um, athletic in a lot of ways and when you look at 
the older bluegrass, it's not, oh, sometimes it's kind of dirty or rough around the edges. And, uh, and those things, uh, don't matter as much to somebody like me or, or Jeremy, but that might be a barrier for folks listening today who are used, used to hearing very, um, very produced music. And so we try, uh, we, we put our all into creating music that is as perfect as it can be while still being human and as well performed as it can be while still being human and still letting our personalities come through it so it's not absolutely metronomic all the time we want to feel those swells and energy and and uh we want to feel you know if if the tempo pushes a little bit well that's we probably want that because we want it to feel exciting and and like the like the old guys were playing it um but I think the, that virtuosic element that we shoot for, we're trying to make sure that it is, uh, that, that it's in the 21st century as far as, you know, nowadays people are, you know, they're, they're playing with metronomes on a regular basis. There's been so much uh, jazz and classical influence that uh, there's not a whole lot of room for um, being rough around the edges <laughs> and 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 like I said we 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 love that aspect and I, I think you can have that vibe while still having a very um, very tailored and a very uh, tucked in performance with things um, you mentioned earlier about bringing in all these different influences like Jim and Jesse sound, the Reno and Smiley sound, and uh, these old gospel quartet sounds, and Charlie Monroe, and things like that, uh, while still trying to maintain your guys' own identity. How do you meld all those influences and all those different styles while still maintaining a cohesive band sound? Well, I think a degree of that comes in with just you have a set, you know, you've got five people. And, and the way that each of us plays, to a degree, is going to come out in the performance. So, yeah, and, and we, we very carefully guard the material that we record and perform um, and uh, sort of run it through, you know, these parameters in our head to decide if, you know, is this song going to fit what we do? And you know, so we have that. But, but at the end of the day, it, it really comes down to how each of us as individuals perform and play and and i think that more than anything else makes it you know high fidelity or not well it sounds like you guys are so honed in on the spirit and feel of those records more so than being able to copy or imitate those artists that uh, that has to leave plenty of room for your own personality to shine through as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I, and, and Jeremy sort of alluded to this by talking about uh, the material that we do, but it's like at, at this point we've sort of found what, what feels good and what fits that high fidelity uh, box for <laughs> lack of a better term. But uh, so when we find those songs that just sort of work with that, um, it feels natural. It simultaneously, it feels like it's 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 serving what high fidelity does in a in a musical sense in terms of like you know uh, having these songs that come from our traditions, and it feels like we're being able to express ourselves individually. And and I guess by having those that that kind of litmus that high fidelity litmus test that material goes through, even if it is something that is not from a 
quote unquote traditional bluegrass background, whether it is uh, the Gone and Left Me Blues, which you said that was a Buddy Holly song, uh, I believe. Gotta or, Get You Near Me Blues. Gotta Get You Near Me yeah. Blues. Sorry, so sorry. Yeah. Um, as Buddy Holly song or Leaf of Love, you guys got from Tex Williams, who's kind of an old Western swing guy. Yes. You guys can still make it fit the high fidelity sound. Yes, yes. yes. And um, it's funny you mentioned the Gone and Left Me Blues. That's one I've thought about because I've got Charlie Monroe <laughs> did that on a live show. <laughs> That's a good song. Um, yeah, and actually, Tex Williams, uh, we actually got that one from. Um, the Carter sisters, there's an air check of them singing it as a duet. Really? Yes, friend of mine, Darren Moore, whose brother everyone knows, Jason Moore of Sideline. Uh, Darren sent me that. He said, y'all need to do this song. And he's right, and we thought we really liked it, you know. So. Oh, now, I didn't ask earlier, where did the name High Fidelity come from? A lot of this, this early stuff on this band goes back to Kurt. And uh, Kurt actually came up with that name. And I fought it at, at first. It's like, well, high fidelity? I don't know. That sounds kind of contemporary or, or, you know, cool sounding. Well, I want to say this. <laughs> Junk light was the reason you couldn't eat. Is that what you were lobbying for? Yeah, I want to say this. You know, we all got together and, and we're like, you know, we need a name. And, and we all had like, uh, you know, ideas and stuff, but th- we didn't feel like any of them really. I've got to ask, what, what were some of the ones that didn't make the cut? Uh, well, the one I think of is one that me and Jeremy tried to use one time, but we never even did a gig with this name. But we said that we, we were trying to use the Cumberland Valley cut ups. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I don't remember, I, I honestly don't remember any other suggestions, but I know there were some. But it's, you know, Kurt said, what he, Kurt said, I don't know if this is cool or stupid, but I. But what about high fidelity? <laughs> and I said, I think that might be. I think that might be cool. <laughs> I wanted something Mountain Boys or something. You know, I. I just. I, I don't think outside of my box too well sometimes. And that's where I was at, but. I came around to high fidelity. I think it's pretty cool. I think, honestly, me and Kurt are probably the ones that signed off on that. Probably so. Vicky and Daniel were probably like, you know, oh, yeah, that's cool, whatever you guys think. And then Jeremy was kind of like, I remember Jeremy was like, ah, I guess I guess that'll be fine. And Kurt, Kurt and me are like very much like, Kurt's like, Jeremy, are you, sh- are you sure you're cool with that? Are you cool with that, Jeremy? I mean, like, <laughs> you, you you don't hate high fidelity, do you? <laughs> he was thinking the, the star-kissed ramblers or something oh, like yeah, that. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> star-kissed ramblers. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But, no, we felt like, you know, when Kurt said that, um, we felt like, that is describing what we're actually trying to do. So that sounds like a good plan. And Jeremy and Kurt, they did contests for, for so long, uh, you know, things like Smithville and Uncle Dave Macon Days. And you ha- would have to come up with these band names o- on the fly or, uh, you know, you'd do these duet contests in there and come up with these uh, names on the fly. And so I, I feel like um, I feel like Kurt's experience with that is what helped him come up with that name yeah. and one of the judges there I, I believe it was probably robert collins yeah who we just lost not long ago but uh he said as soon as i heard the name high fidelity i knew i knew what to expect musically he said and i got excited he said I, they said high fidelity i thought hmm this will be interesting and he said and it was it was exactly what i was hoping it would be so we were like interesting and uh, after we won the contest we said 
Kurt goes, we can't ever use the name High Fidelity for anything else in any contest ever again. It's like, no, we can't because we won. This is <laughs> all right, yeah. <laughs> and lo and behold, now it's, you know, turned into this whole thing. And we could have never imagined. It's just one of these things. It's just an ama- amazing blessing to be able to do this kind of music and, and <laughs> take it this far. It's incredible. And it works out perfect because um, so many of the records you guys grew up listening to had High Fidelity. Oh, yeah, right across the top. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, it's sort of, it's cool. Um, We were at a, at a festival this last weekend and one of the MCs said the definition of high fidelity is, you know, he wasn't thinking about it in terms of the records, you know, saying high fidelity on, on all those records, which is where Kurt got the idea from, you know, high fidelity being on the records, being like old records, the era of bluegrass that we're uh, aspiring to, you know, nod our heads to and all that sort of thing. But this MC said uh, the definition of high fidelity is uh, and a true and authentic representation of a sound or something like that. And I didn't hear the rest of it. I thought, wow, that's really cool. <laughs> you guys hit the nail on the head without even realizing it. Definitely right? what we're aiming to go for. You know, yeah, so. it's, there's a lot of cool things with, with that name that we've thought of after the fact. And we're just like, wow, yeah, we really we like this name. Yeah. <laughs> what do you hope that the audiences of today learn about the music of yesteryear through High Fidelity? I want audiences today to hear the soul in in all of that. I want I want them to hear um, just the the grit and emotion and soul and creativity in that music because that's what drew me to that. And a lot of people have asked me, they're like, "How did you go from just listening to like rock music to bluegrass?" And it's the same thing that I'm attracted to in, in all of that. You know, it's just the different ways of, rep, of uh, letting it out, somebody repre- uh, expressing themselves, what I'm trying to say. And so when I'm doing, you know, uh, uh, when, we're, when we're in a high fidelity show or, or we're rehearsing things or getting ready for a record and, and exploring things like that creatively, um, you know, I, I want to dig into this, the soul of that and... I feel like so much of what we're surrounded with in life today is sort of uh, like menu, mass manufactured, you know, Walmarts and, <laughs> and Home Depot and whatever. Um, even, unfortunately, even a, a lot of popular music can feel that way. And so um, I, I want it to feel special and human and emotional and just... I guess uh, creative in that format, but yeah, the emotion and the um, the expression in that music is is what I want to come across in our shows. For me, <clears throat> it's a lot of um, to do with the material because uh, we we really um, carefully pick songs that um, haven't been overdone and some maybe that very few people remember or have heard and definitely today's audiences i I hope that a lot of the songs seem new um to them and that that's what it is for me because i've i've always you know being a a collector and someone that's listened to a lot of this old music for so long and just loved it and lived inside these records um i've always wanted a platform to be able to bring some of that uh to today's audience Awesome. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks for having us, Daniel. It's been a blast. Oh, yeah.
Aren't they adorable? I love Jeremy and Karina. Love their music. I'm a huge High Fidelity fan. Their first ever all gospel project recently was released on Rebel Records called Music in My Soul. Highly encourage you to check it out. It is such a blessing. It's always a blessing to hang out with Jeremy and Karina. It was uh, wonderful hearing uh, Karina talk about the late Jesse McReynolds. Of course, when we recorded this interview in 2021, uh, he was still with us. He passed away just a few months ago and has left a huge hole in the hearts of so many in the bluegrass community. It was wonderful hearing Jeremy and Karina talk about Bluegrass Music Hall of Famer Jesse McReynolds, learning about their admiration for Reno and Smiley, Jeremy's passion for both record collecting and Cantuna. I told you, we had a whole lot of fun at the Coffee Hub in Xenia, Ohio. Be sure to follow Walls of Time on Instagram and on Facebook. Always have a lot of fun uh, sharing clips from episodes, all sorts of cool behind-the-scenes photos. I recently dropped a reel on our Instagram page showing you what problem you don't want to run into the next time you go to a bluegrass festival. And it's a problem that can be prevented by going to LawnChairUSA.com and using code Walls of Time to save 10% on your new favorite lawn chair. Uh, go to Walls of Time podcast on uh, Instagram and uh, see exactly what I'm talking about. Folks have been asking about Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast merch. If you're interested in my limited inventory of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast t-shirts that I still have right now, uh, you can shoot me a message through the Walls of Time uh, podcast on, on Instagram or on Facebook. We might just have some cool new merch soon, so be sure to stay tuned. But the shirts that I have now, fantastic. They're wonderful. So shoot me a message uh, through the Walls of Time Instagram or Facebook if you are interested. We'll be back next time with more great field-recorded interviews from the world of bluegrass. Be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you enjoy podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today.